Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Corey, I just want you to know that this FOSS isn't for them. It's FOSS for us. Well, I have to say that before the episode started, we were arguing about who had to do the introduction, and I really didn't want to do it today, and now I regret letting you do it, Kellen. That was my whole intention. (laughs) So the episode's about phosphorus, if you couldn't tell, by Kellen's amazing joke. But I'm actually really excited for this episode. We've talked about phosphorus in the past, and we've done a few peak episodes, right? We've talked about peak oil before. We've talked about peak sand. We are at a time right now where food insecurity is starting to become a real issue. There's always been hungry people. There's always been starving people. But recent developments have brought the issue of food insecurity to the forefront. And even without issues in phosphorus, the availability of food, of enough food for everybody, is becoming more and more of a concern. Today's episode regarding phosphorus, which is used in fertilizers, has the ability to completely break food supply all on its own. I was also really interested to do research on this one because there's a lot of controversy around the idea of peak phosphorus, about how much phosphorus we actually have left, how long it's going to last us. So I was excited for the chance to really dig in and try and find some numbers so we can decide how how big of a deal really is this. Yeah, through the course of the podcast, I feel like I've learned about a number of things that I had no idea about before. I don't think I'm alone in saying that phosphorus is something I've never really thought much about or cared about. You don't spend your days considering the elements? No, but you know what I mean? I guess I'm saying that I never realized just how important phosphorus is until doing the research for this podcast. 
And it's important in a number of ways, but like you said, primarily as it relates to agriculture, you're spot on in that if this is a resource we are approaching the peak of as our global population continues to climb, then it's definitely one more thing on top of all the other things that we're facing as a global society. And this one, like you said, has the potential to be catastrophic. So let's first take just a moment to explain what phosphorus is. And you'll probably hear us throughout the episode saying phosphorus, and you'll hear us talking about phosphates. Phosphorus is a chemical element or a mineral. Phosphates are the naturally occurring form of the element phosphorus. So if there are chemical compounds containing phosphorus, those are called phosphates. It's kind of a broad term. And even the term phosphate looks a little bit different or means something different, whether you're talking about geology or chemistry. But again, generally a phosphate is any chemical compound containing phosphorus or containing a group of linked oxygen and phosphorus atoms. And mostly what we'll be talking about in the episode is phosphate rock, which is a compound that contains enough concentration of phosphate that it can be economically mined and produced to be used in fertilizers. So for the most part, phosphorus is not a word we'll use a whole lot. I'll probably get it wrong a couple times and say phosphorus when I mean phosphate or vice versa, but it's good to know the difference. Yeah, and speaking of the difference, just to clarify a little bit, when it comes to the chemical element, phosphorus, there's white phosphorus and red phosphorus. White phosphorus is poisonous. It's a waxy solid. Any contact with skin can cause severe burns. It glows in the dark. So you might hear about phosphorescence. It is spontaneously flammable when exposed to air. Red phosphorus is very different. It's odorless. It's colorless. It's not poisonous. It doesn't glow in the dark. Technically, there's another form of phosphorus called black phosphorus. You can get it when you like heat up red phosphorus at a high temperature in a sealed tube or white phosphorus at a different set of high temperature and high pressure conditions. But I wanted to share something I thought was really interesting. Corey, I'll be intrigued to hear your response to this. Phosphorus appears to have been discovered in 1669 by Hennig Brand, a German merchant whose hobby was alchemy. Here's the good part. Brand allowed 50 buckets of urine to stand until they putrefied and bred worms. He then boiled the urine down to a paste and heated it with sand, thereby distilling elemental phosphorus from the mixture. Brand reported his discovery in a letter to Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, and thereafter demonstrations of this element and its ability to glow in the dark, or phosphoresce, excited public interest. You know, in my personal hobby of keeping buckets of urine, I had never once thought that I could actually do something productive with it. So this guy just took something that we all do, but he actually made a discovery. Incredible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to let 50 buckets of urine... Why 50? <laughs> like, couldn't he start with one bucket? I don't know of his method of collection either. <laughs> well, I mean, if it was the 1600s, they... I don't know history, but I'm guessing that they probably peeing in buckets anyway. If they weren't just peeing outside, it was in a bucket, right? Bedpan or something. Well, to let it putrefy and then boil it, get it to a paste, heat it with sand. I mean, you got to be really committed to what you're trying to accomplish. You would. Absolutely. And then he made it glow in the dark. His work paid off. <laughs> Anyways, that's when it's claimed that phosphorus was discovered. One thing I didn't realize is that 
Phosphorus is the second most abundant mineral in the human body, next to calcium. And 85% of that is in our bones and our teeth. But it's something that we need. Most everyone has plenty of phosphorus. But we've got to have it for our growth, uh, for maintaining, repairing tissues and cells, for the production of DNA and RNA. It helps balance other vitamins and minerals. But going back to the fact that there are different types of phosphorus, ingestion of elemental white or yellow phosphorus typically causes severe vomiting and diarrhea, which are both described as smoking, luminescent, and having a garlic-like odor. I'd like to see what he could do with 50 buckets of that. (laughs) Well, now that we've talked about urine and diarrhea and vomiting and how that relates to phosphorus, Probably the thing that we need to understand most about phosphorus is it is essential for plant growth. It helps root development, plant maturation, seed development. Often when you hear about fertilizers and you get into the chemical side of it, phosphorus is really important. So is nitrogen. So is potassium. So you might think, how do we get phosphorus? Where do we get it from? Like I said, when we ingest it in our food, but when we want a large supply of phosphorus that we can use in manufacturing synthetic fertilizers, for example, we get it from phosphate rock. And and there are other ways that we can gather it, but really the primary way that we get phosphorus is from phosphate rock. The rock gets crushed down basically to a powder and then usually either sulfuric or phosphoric acids are used as part of a process to form crude calcium hydrogen phosphates. And that's important because they're water-soluble and they become really valuable additions to fertilizers. Yeah, so you're pointing out here how important phosphorus is for pretty much all living things, right? Humans need it in order to survive. It's a significant part of who we are. But particularly, plants really need it. In order to have a healthy, high-yield crop or plant, it has to have a healthy enough dose of phosphorus. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly it. And like we've talked about in the past, in order for us to get enough yield in our farming to support the kind of population that we have, synthetic fertilizers are really the only way to get that much food. And if I can cut in here real quick, I think it's probably important to note that you know we've talked in the past about our agricultural methods and about the types of food that we grow and what we grow it for and how extremely inefficient it is. So when you say it's the only way to get as much food as we need, I think it's important to point out it's probably the only way to get enough food the way we're doing it. We grow so much food for cows to eat and with our livestock to eat so that we can eat the cows, right? When that is a really inefficient way of doing it. We could grow a lot less plants and get as much nutrients, get get enough food for everybody. But because of the way that we do it, we require a ton of this phosphorus fertilizer, synthetic fertilizer to make it happen. Yeah, thanks for clarifying. Under the current way that we operate, the current way that we do agriculture, in order to produce as much as we need, we've got to have fertilizers. And like we've talked about in those episodes on agriculture, it's not something that's likely to change unless it's forced on us by lack of fertilizers or whatever it might be to to allow it to continue. But there's so much money in it and people have grown accustomed to a certain lifestyle and a certain type of food that at least for the time being, there does not appear to be any shift towards moving away from that type of agriculture and that type of consumption. Yeah, good points. So phosphorus is used in a lot of things. I think it's worth mentioning it's used in pesticides and 
detergents, fireworks, matches, plasticizers, baking powder. But the vast majority of the phosphorus that we use is in fertilizers. So like I mentioned before, it comes from mining rock, this rock phosphate. 70% of the world's phosphate reserves are in North Africa. Others claim that it's three quarters of the world's phosphate reserves that are just in the country of Morocco alone. But we also get limited quantities of it from China, Russia, South Africa, the United States. It's tough because sometimes it is found in rock, but not in high enough concentrations for it to make sense for us to mine it. So where it's located, the availability of it, how easy it is to mine, the transportation cost, all that comes into effect. The most common phosphate fertilizers are SSP, TSP, but especially DAP. And I know that's a lot of acronyms. We don't need to dive into all of it. But DAP, or diammonium phosphate, is the world's most widely used phosphorus fertilizer. It's got a high nutrient content, great physical properties. And so often when we're talking about phosphorus fertilizers, we're talking about DAP specifically. DAP is also a great source for nitrogen. It, generally speaking, gives the right proportions of phosphorus and nitrogen if you are wanting to farm grains like wheat or barley or for fruits and vegetables, it's kind of got the right mix. There are also NPKs, and they're called that because they contain those three nutrients we talked about before. They've got nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium in different proportions. So there are lots of different types of NPK products. They're usually kind of tailored. There are certain recipes for whatever it is you're trying to grow. So depending on how far you look back, we get kind of this mix of how much demand there is for each of these types of products. DAPs, we're talking more than 30 million tons a year. NPKs, at least 20 million tons a year. But then there's also an intermediate product, which is phosphoric acid. 10% of that is used in the food industry. But again, phosphoric acid is often used in the production of getting these phosphates from the mined rock into a form that it can be used in fertilizers. So all of that's to say phosphorus is important, crucially so, to plants, to human life, and because of the way that we farm, because of the way that our agriculture works, we require synthetic fertilizer, which uses phosphorus from phosphate rock. So getting to the collapse portion of all of this, well, how does this relate to the topic of collapse? Of course, the title of the episode is Peak Phosphorus. And it's the idea that there could come a potential time when we hit a peak in the amount of phosphorus that we produce, when demand will be larger than supply, and there will be a breakdown in the amount of fertilizer that can be offered and produced, which means that the amount of food that can be produced will decrease, which means that there will be a shortage of food for the amount of people there are in the world. You know, right now, even though there are a large number of starving and hungry people in the world, it's often said that it's not because there's not enough food. There is enough food, we just don't distribute it properly. But with peak phosphorus, what we're talking about is an actual constraint on the supply of food, meaning that people are starving simply because there is not enough. This would obviously increase the cost of food greatly, meaning the wealthiest nations and the wealthiest people would be the ones with access to food. Meanwhile, the poorer or even you know, middle-class people may not be able to afford it. So, Kellen, you mentioned a few numbers about how much phosphorus is being mined and, and how, how much is being used and produced and some of the concentrations. I'm going to go in, in a little bit deeper on those numbers so we can kind of get an idea of how much phosphorus is out there, how fast are we using it, what is the outlook. 
So the Earth has quadrillions of tons of phosphorus. But like you said, the vast majority of that is not extractable because it's in such low concentrations. So the Earth's crust actually contains phosphorus in it, but the concentration of it is so low that it is not anywhere near economically viable to extract it. So we have to go to the phosphate rock, which has it in these much higher concentrations, which makes it easier to mine, easier to produce, and it can be done at a cost that actually makes sense. Phosphate rock has a concentration between 1.7 and 8.7% of phosphorus. The Earth's crust, on the other hand, has a concentration of 0.1%. So just way, 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 way less concentration. And plants have between 0.03 to 0.2%. So while there is all this phosphorus out there, there's just so little of it that we can actually use. So when we talk about phosphate rock reserves, what we're talking about is the amount that is assumed recoverable at current market prices. So just like with peak oil, when we talk about the reserves of oil, you know, we're talking about the amount that can be accessed and that it can be accessed at a positive EROEI. Once you get below, you get a negative EROEI out of it. Suddenly it's not practical or possible to remove it from the ground at that point. We're basically talking about the same thing with phosphorus. So you mentioned that somewhere between 70 and 75% of the world's alleged reserves are in Morocco. What's interesting is the country with the next highest share of phosphate rock is China with only around 5%. So you have one country with 75%, the next country has 5%. And then after that, there's like 10 countries that all have anywhere from a couple of percent down to fractions of percentages. And that poses a few problems, and we can talk about those a little bit more later in the episode. But what's interesting is there is a ton of conflicting info around how much phosphorus or phosphate rock is actually out there, what is actually in reserves. According to some reports, so there's one that was done by the USGS, they say there's around 70 billion tons of phosphate rock in reserves. This is according to the numbers that each country claims they have in reserves. And that currently, globally, we are mining 233 million tons per year. So at current usage levels, if there was no growth in the amount of phosphorus that we were mining, we wouldn't deplete those reserves for another 260 years. So a lot of people listening would be like, oh, like we're fine. We've got a couple hundred years that, you know, obviously with collapse, there's other things that'll take us first. We don't need to worry about phosphorus. We'll get to a few reasons why that's not true here in just a second. One of those is that the actual amount of reserves, like I mentioned, is highly disputed. It's believed that a very large amount of claimed reserves in Morocco is highly speculative and inaccurate. There was a study done in 2014, and it found that, and I'm quoting here, the report presents an inflated picture of global reserves, in particular those of Morocco, where largely hypothetical and inferred resources have simply been relabeled reserves. And this is the same thing that we run into when we talk about peak oil, right? Saudi Arabia, some of these other nations claim to have these vast accessible reserves and yet, there's no external verification of that. It's in the country's best interest to claim they have a lot more than they may actually have. There's no way to actually verify it. You're basically just taking that country's word on how much they say that they have. And we've actually seen just over the last couple of years, especially this year, you know, Saudi Arabia has been saying, we can't produce more. We're at our max production. They want to be producing more, but they, they can't. And that gets into a couple different things about how maybe they have more in reserves, but it's inaccessible right now, or they can't ramp up to it quick enough. That's a huge issue in the whole idea of peak production. 
but it's also very likely that the number of reserves that they claim to have is highly overestimated. One article from MIT puts the amount of known reserves at just 80 years. And the range that I've seen from most papers out there on it say anywhere between 35 and 400 years. So, I mean, that's a huge range to say we might be 35 years away. And this is from depletion, not peak. We have 35 years total of phosphate rock left before it's all gone, or we have up to 400 years left before it's all gone. Yeah, I think so often the argument when people claim we don't need to worry about peak resources is they say there's so much on the planet. Like there's enough oil that it would last us for centuries and there's enough phosphorus that would last us for thousands of years, right? Like what you talked about, there's quadrillions of tons of phosphorus in the earth's crust, but that return on investment is such an important factor in all of this that often isn't considered. When you talk about there being like what between one and 8%, something like that, phosphorus in phosphate rock. And yet there's probably lots of rock out there that has a much smaller percentage. There's just always a price we have to pay. There's always a process in order for us to extract and refine and make it something that we can use that takes a lot of work and energy. And it does make the issue that much more complicated when the estimates range so vastly. Like to think what you said, not not only peak, but actual depletion could be just a few decades away, or it could be hundreds of years away. It's hard to drive any action when the information we have is that convoluted. Yeah, if you have papers, some of which, like you said, are saying 35 years, and others that are saying 400 years, well, if you're a person, or uh, you know, if you're in the industry, and you make your money off of phosphorus mining, or it's in your interest to not have any action taken to reduce the amount of phosphate being produced, of course, you're going to look at the paper that says 400 years and you're going to say, we have nothing to worry about. 400 years from now, we'll have a technology to be able to extract more reserves or we won't need phosphate anymore at that point. Like there's nothing to worry about. We can continue to grow exponentially. And that is a frustration. Now, a big part of this, you know, going off of the USGS report saying we have 260 years left, that's without any growth. But we are growing, and it is an exponential growth. That growth comes not just because our population is increasing, which is a huge part of it, but an even bigger part of it is that developing countries are growing. Countries are becoming more developed, and as they do, they're changing the way that they do their agriculture. They're changing the way that they eat, and they're taking more and more advantage of phosphate fertilizers. One report that I read up, it, this was a report that was more on the financial side and like investing in phosphorus and things like that. It was talking about an expected annual growth rate from now until 2032 at 5.5% annually of phosphate fertilizer usage. So even if the actual reserves were as high as these countries are claiming, right? If there really was 70 billion metric tons of phosphate rock out there, which again is highly disputed, then that growth rate of 5.5% would mean that we're mining almost 400 million tons instead of 233 million tons by 2032. So almost doubling the amount that we're mining in just the next 10 years. Just doing some napkin math, that would decrease the number of years until depletion by almost 100 down to 165 from the 260 that we had talked about. And continued growth through 2050 at that rate would bring us down to like 55 years until depletion. Now, again, that is with the absolute most optimistic and seemingly impossible amount of actual phosphate that does exist 
based on taking these countries' words on how much they have, specifically Morocco. And that being said, we know very well that depletion is very different than peak. And just to reiterate that, if you've missed some of our prior conversations on peak oil, depletion is the moment in which there is zero left. If we deplete completely our phosphorus resources, our phosphate rock reserves, then at that point, we're literally producing none, right? These synthetic fertilizers go away. Food production, for the most part, comes to a complete halt. The entire world dies. Like, that's depletion. And of course, that would be awful. But what is going to happen before depletion is peak, which just means that the production does not meet demand. And when that happens, it can become a very expensive downward slide in which people are not able to be fed and the people that are able to be fed are paying a very high cost for it. So one of the things that makes reaching the peak, if we set depletion aside, just reaching the peak of actual production is another way in which it's similar to oil. And that is that the easy to reach and highest quality phosphate rock is mined first. And that's the stuff that we're starting to run low on. You know, we gave a range of 1.7 to 8.7% concentration. That's a huge difference. The rock with the 8.7% concentration, that's the stuff that's get, that gets mined first. And slowly we get down to more and more of the, the lesser concentrations, which means higher cost of production. You've got to mine more of this rock to get the same amount of phosphate out of it. You've got to dig deeper. You've got to, you know, just reach more difficult to reach places. And all of this slows down the rate at which you can produce it. Like with oil, if the EROEI dropped, you had to pull a whole bunch more from the ground in order for it to serve the same amount of energy. Well, with phosphate, as the demand for it grows, but the quality that we're pulling up decreases, it means we have to really increase production in order to just meet the same amount of demand that we were meeting before. As all these countries that have little amounts left, their reserves aren't high, you know, we're talking in the fractions of percentages, as they start to dry up or as they start to hit their peaks, for example, the U.S. peaked in phosphorus production decades ago, the world will rely more and more heavily on single countries like China and Morocco. To consider that the entire world's agriculture, the fate of the whole world's food lies in the hands of one country in North Africa, obviously there are some severe geopolitical consequences to that and risks. That leaves Morocco with a lot of power over the world, and it also leaves a lot of the powerful nations of the world having a vested interest in Morocco itself. As phosphate rock becomes more scarce, its value will increase, which means that, economically speaking, controlling what happens in Morocco is going to become more and more tempting. And so nations who commonly get involved in other nations' resources, you know, th this is a very potential flashpoint as resources become more scarce. And in a part of the world where conflicts such as these aren't uncommon already. From what I've seen, there are a lot of conversations out there about ways we can use phosphorus better. The most common claim when it comes to the problems here is just that we are overusing phosphorus. You know, a large majority of fertilizer ends up in places that it shouldn't, like bodies of water. There are conversations around how we can better recycle phosphorus and reuse it. Some of that involves using human waste as fertilizer. Everybody get out your buckets. And all of those potential solutions are great, but it requires us doing things differently than how we are now. 
And making those changes and getting the right infrastructure and processes in place has a cost. Hopefully we can make a shift in the right way so that the use of phosphorus is more sustainable than it is now. But regardless of the exact time frame and exactly what steps we take, as long as we continue to use phosphorus, I think it's a good reminder that the way this will present itself is economically. Like with peak oil or peak sand or whatever resource we're talking about, we're probably not ever going to see the day that there's just not any left. But yeah, when we talk about reserves, people kind of think of it as like, oh, there's just this big bank of this resource we can go withdraw from. But for all the reasons you talked about, it just becomes more and more expensive. And that cost gets passed down to the consumer. As it becomes more scarce, the producers of these resources can charge more for it. I kind of think of it like when you when you said people view it as like a bank, oh, it's reserves. It's just what you've got all in this big pile. You can go take from it whenever you want. I think of it like if you were in like a, a one square mile plot of land and we said, all right, there's a million dollars in this one square mile of land. And like there's hundred dollar bills just like thrown all over the ground and stuff. But once you've collected all the hundred dollar bills, like the other 70% of that million dollars is in like pennies and it's buried and you have to start digging, you know, like sure, maybe there's a million dollars there, but is it actually, does it make sense to extract it? You've taken all the easy to gather stuff. And while you were doing that, it made it feel like there was just tons of it. There's this unlimited amount of money laying around. I can just go use and spend. And then all of a sudden you're digging for pennies and trying to like use that. But the numbers still show there's a million dollars here. Yeah, that's a great way to think about it. And this ties in so well to catabolic collapse because knowing where to put the resources we have as our problems just kind of exponentially grow becomes more and more difficult. If we're putting money towards this thing and and there's only a limited amount, we have to pull it from there to put it towards this other thing. And as the cost of everything goes up, there's no way we can continue our same lifestyle. So again, I, I don't think you'll ever be watching the news and you'll see a news report, we've run out of phosphorus. Instead, those fertilizers will become more expensive, which means the food will become more expensive. And the way that plays out with our widening wealth gap will just mean there's more food insecurity, more hunger and starvation on top of all the supply chain issues and on top of all the heat waves and natural disasters that are wreaking havoc on agriculture. So it's just one more ingredient in this big complex problem. And it's interesting because we talk about reserves being something that can be extractable at current market prices. And it makes it sound like, and it's true, that reserves can grow as market prices increase, right? So there may always, like you said, be stuff in reserves that we can access. It's just, are we willing to pay for it? As we get down to phosphate rock with much lower percentages that maybe right now are not economically viable, well, yeah, they may be economically viable in the future when it's normal to pay $20 for a banana. We hear all the time about, you know, right now, especially supply chain issues or shortages in something. You, you can think of probably a dozen different shortages going on right now. And yeah, phosphorus will just become another one of those. Oh, there's a supply chain issues in the production of phosphorus right now, and it's tightening up, you know, it's causing food prices to increase. And that's something that at some point, once we hit peak phosphorus, year after year will just increase. One of the tricky things about it is that it's not an immediately noticeable consequence. You know, reductions in the amount of phosphorus being mined means that there's supply constraints in the fertilizer, which then the fertilizer is used 
for the next year's crop. And, and so it's spread out over a number of years before the consequences of that actually are seen. So all of that's to say, it's, it's not just as simple as saying, like you said, a news report, this just in, the world's run out of phosphorus, there's no more food. It's going to be a much uglier decline, one that affects the poorest of the world first and then creeps its way up. Unless, also like you mentioned, we can find ways to better utilize phosphorus. The tricky part, again, is that because the numbers are all over the place, we are unlikely to make any changes because those changes would require sacrifices. And nobody wants to make those sacrifices, especially when they're seeing reports that say there's hundreds of years of phosphate left. If every report, for example, was saying there's 35 years of phosphate left, if we don't stop using it right now or find a better way to use it, we will run out. If every report was saying that, maybe there'd be more focus on it. I say maybe because every report right now is showing that climate change is ethically bad and so many people don't want to make changes for that. But because there is so much discrepancy, because there are so many reports still showing we have so much phosphate left, nobody is going to pay attention. No one's going to make sacrifices. And especially the, the people who really need to make the sacrifices, the ones who are making money from the production of these fertilizers, they're not going to stop. And in some ways with all of this, it'd be nice if there was like a single culprit we could point to for any of these problems. There are just so many layers with every issue that we talk about, whether there's a topic of a certain problem and there's subtopics and there's subtopics of those subtopics. When it comes to agriculture, let's say phosphorus, at least in our lifetimes, only becomes 10% more expensive. But we also talk about how nitrogen and potassium are key ingredients to fertilizers. So maybe there's a slight increase in cost there as well. And let's say the cost to be able to get water that you can use for your farmland also goes up by 10%. And let's say the Which cost... It's likely to be much more than that with <laughs> depending on where you live in the world right now. Oh, totally. And let's say the cost of fuel goes up by 10%, right? And when you look at any single issue and you say, oh, it's only 10%, we're going to be fine. But it's the accumulation of all those things that causes the most concern for me. And on top of that, you might have an accumulation of all those shortages, or, or I should say an accumulation of the increase in costs, but we're also going to have a decrease in overall production of food. So the food that is being produced costs more, and as the availability of that food decreases, but demand increases, that also increase the cost, right? If we're in areas of drought where not only does water cost more, but it's just completely unavailable and farms are shutting down, then the amount of food the next year from that yield is going to be much less and that drives up the cost. So yeah, there's so many ways in which costs goes up. Phosphorus is a very important one and a true peak phosphorus all on its own could be catastrophic. Like you're mentioning, slight pricing increases by themselves can also be enough when coming from enough different angles to mean that a significant portion of the world can no longer afford to eat. So as we started this episode, one of the things that you mentioned, Corey, is we're hearing more and more about food insecurity in these last couple of years than we have in a long time. And I know that some of the big supply chain disruptions from the war in Ukraine and from increases in fuel prices and the labor shortages from the pandemic, like a lot of these things are things that we won't see the downstream impacts of for a couple of years. So the fact that we're already seeing issues with food insecurity, but that it's also forecasted in the coming years, we're really going to see more significant issues. When you add in 
this element of phosphorus, it highlights just how much of a change we need to make if we want to make things sustainable. Well, I hope in the coming years, there's more transparency around the numbers of reserves so that more public attention can be brought to the issue. If we can find out how much is actually available, it would make it much easier to know what actions need to be taken. And in alluding to your joke at the beginning, to make sure that there's enough FOSS for them and FOSS for us. <laughs> well said. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 